From Vermont Public, this is Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. There are no rules. We're all just out here trying to survive, you know, and and the music is about that. Deloisi Maliaka Obamsuin, Noji Odenak. My name is Mali Obamsuin, and I'm from Odenak First Nation. For as long as Mali Obamsuin can remember, music has been part of her life. Big time. Yeah, my dad's a musician, many musicians in my family, and yeah, ever since I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. She's a composer, band leader, singer, songwriter, guitarist, and bassist. And she's steeped in a few different music traditions. As a kid, Molly went to fiddle camp in Maine and learned folk music. Then she attended Dartmouth College, where she studied jazz. Especially um, sort of creative music, black creative music, and improvised music. She's also a citizen of Wabanaki First Nation at Odernak, also known as Odernak First Nation, her native community. And they have a long tradition in music as well. And the way that our drum rhythms have always been with the, with the hand drum, you know, that, that swings. All of these musical influences can be heard on her new album, Sweet Tooth. I think Sweet Tooth is kind of like the accumulation of my entire musical journey this far. The name Sweet Tooth, Mm. where does that come from? Oh, that's one of the questions that I want to leave up to interpretation. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'll explain almost everything else about the album. (laughs) Molly grew up in Maine and still lives there when she's not touring. Most recently, she toured internationally with the acclaimed folk rock band Lula Wiles. Meanwhile, much of her family and greater community lives in central Quebec at Odernak First Nation. If we're talking numbers, the majority of my relatives are there, I guess you could say. Um, Every time I go there, it feels like home, although I've never actually permanently lived there. The term Wabanaki generally refers to the same people as the word more commonly used in Vermont, Abenaki. Both describe people indigenous to this region, a.k.a. Mali's ancestors. Up until the early 1600s, they lived everywhere from the Champlain Valley in New York and Vermont all the way east to Maine. Then, across the whole continent, indigenous people experienced disease, genocide, and slavery at the hands of European colonizers. Which uh, wiped out 90% of the indigenous population here. In this area, some of those who survived sought refuge in places like Odernak. It's a chapter of history that comes through in Molly's album, Sweet Tooth, along with other stories connected to the region. We never stopped coming back to Vermont. And so some of the stories on the album are, are stories that our people told, ancient stories and newer stories that talk about places in what is now called Vermont. Yeah, so Vermont is like all through this album. So the album is about the land known as Vermont, but it's not quite about Vermont specifically. I never say the word Vermont on the album because for us, there's no distinction, right? It's just uh, our territory. (laughs) Not easy. 
Here on Brave Little State, we answer questions submitted and voted on by you, the audience. And the question that inspired this episode came from David Hess. The genesis of the question is more of a curve than a straight line. David lives in Southern Oregon and dreams of one day moving to Vermont. He loves nature and being outside. And so in the interest of better appreciating his dream state, he asked Brave Little State this. Are there Native American legends and mythologies that speak to a deeper time uh, relationship with the landscape of Vermont? Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. David isn't Native American, and neither am I. When I followed up with him to learn more about his curiosity, he cited a deep respect for what he described as a Native American worldview. I just think in this time, it's important for everyone to maybe look at the the landscape, the ecology, wherever you are, uh, with a little bit more reverence. It turned out, though, that answering David's question about Native American legends was anything but straightforward. I started by calling up a number of representatives for tribes across the Northeast who declined to participate. Some were hesitant to share sacred stories with a mostly white audience, and others told me it was simply not the right time of year for them. Storytelling in their communities occurs mainly during the winter months. Some people did agree to talk to me, like Molly Obamsawin, and I put David's question to her. I'm just curious if you have any reactions to that question. Makes sense. People are curious about that. Um, I wouldn't go into detail telling a really sacred story, you know, about it, but I will say that we do have stories that definitely place us here during the Ice Age, you know, which is cool. Um, That is cool. Yeah. (laughs) There's some stories about hunting mammoths, you know, and (laughs) so, so that's dope. I also spoke to a number of Native reporters and educators, and a common thread emerged. White people are often only interested in Native stories that are non-threatening, comfortable to listen to, and also really, really old. And at this point, Molly Obamsawin's just kind of tired of only being asked about her people's distant past. There is this idea that Indigenous people will never leave the 16th or 17th or 18th century, right? They see us in regalia. They see us living in wigwams or teepees, which is inaccurate, um, you know, right? And uh, there's this idea that we'll, we can't adapt or, you know, this like denial of modernity to indigenous people. And that's what I really wanted to showcase with this album. You know, the whole album, the message really is like that um, we're adaptive and we're faced with this challenge where we don't want to deny ourselves the pleasure of engaging with beautiful things that are around us, like jazz, you know, or like French French chanson or like whatever, right? But in addition to all of this adaptation, Molly still acknowledges how important the past is. We also have to do our best to preserve 
what is sacred and what, what we inherit from our ancestors. So to answer this question about Native American legends and deep time, we're going to focus on something that's happening right now. One story connected to Vermont that's being told in modern times, but that's also deeply intertwined with things that happened a long time ago. That story is Molly Obamsawin's Sweet Tooth. We're saying things now. We have, we're telling powerful stories now, and you, you would benefit by engaging with them now. Sweet Tooth is made up of three movements. The first movement includes the opening two tracks, Odina and Lineage, and it focuses on the past. Odina, the forming of our nation and our satellite village, Mazipskui. Lineage goes back even further, right? And it's it's the story of the timeless story of the Abenaki, right? Um, and and that uh, you know conceptually, right? That that uh, composition has no lyrics, but that's what's happening in the first movement. The next two tracks form the second movement, which is all about spirituality. Um, which transcends all time, of course, but the first song is a, you know, the religious Catholic hymn translated into Abenaki by a priest, possibly as early as the 1690s, as a means to colonize us and Christianize us, right? And then the counterpart of that is Beraguadzoist, which is the ancient spiritual story. This is my favorite part of the album, Movement 2, Track 4. You may have to help me with pronunciation, but on the fourth track... Pedaguajo? Pedaguadzoes. Pedaguadzoes? Yeah. All right. On that track, it opens with a voice that isn't yours. Yeah. Who is that? Yeah. Um, his name is Theophile Panadis uh, from the Panadis family. Um, and they reserved land in their homeland for their uh, relatives, their descendants um, in Vermont. He's telling the story of our, our spirit journeys to what's called Lake Champlain in that recording. It's all in the Wapanaki language, so that is a bit limiting, you know, uh, even for our own community, to be perfectly honest, because there's not as many speakers as we would like, right? And we're working on that. Um, but I hope that non-native audiences will feel drawn in by it, um, just by the music itself. Molly found this recording in the archives at Dartmouth College. 
It was made in the mid-1900s by an ethnologist named Gordon Day. The person he recorded, Theophile Panadis, was a traditional teacher from Odernak First Nation. How did you decide to, to include that um, so prominently in the first two or so minutes of, of that track? I just felt that it was so beautiful, the cadence of our language, you know, and, and to have an actual, you know, first language speaker featured on the album felt really important, too, because, you know, I, I tried my best, right? Uh, and I think the ancestors will be able to understand me, you know, <laughs> might be a little accented or whatnot. But but for him to have the space to to tell so much of that story um, it felt important, and as an improviser as well, um, I just think our, our language is so uh, melodic and rhythmic, and it was really fascinating to me to try to improvise to that and be in conversation with that on my instrument. For nearly two minutes at the opening of this track, one of Molly's predecessors at Odernak First Nation tells his story while Molly accompanies him on the bass. It's like a reunion across generations made possible by the power of recording technology. And then, all of a sudden, one of Mali's accompanying musicians comes in with some guitar. Soon after, others come in on the horns. I've listened to this track over and over again, and there's something about the cross-generational accompaniment, the old and the new existing on top of one another in parallel, that really grabbed me. The dissonance is striking and beautiful. I wanted the overlap, you know, because I feel like that melody goes so well with the story and the content of the story itself, you know? Like, it's a it's a journey. It has ups and downs. It, like, it feels very much like water to me. When we come back, the third movement of Molly Obamsuin's album, Sweet Tooth. It's the, the issues of community keeping and community definition and community preservation that we're facing going forward. Welcome back to Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. Today, we're learning about Native stories that connect to the landscape of Vermont. And we're doing so through music. The musician is Malia Bamsawin a member of Odernak First Nation. Her people's ancestral territory stretches from the Champlain Valley all the way to the Kennebec River in Maine. Now, most of our First Nations community lives on one reservation in central Quebec. And the history of that forced migration is ever-present on Molly's new album, Sweet Tooth. Molly calls Sweet Tooth a suite, S-U-I-T-E, of music. Specifically, as a suite for indigenous resistance. Yeah. What does that mean? Um, the album and the, the compositions tell certain stories. Um, it's all in the Abenaki language. Um, so <laughs> you'll have to learn that in order to fully understand it. But um, 
ultimately, the suite asks the listener to consider what we're facing today. You know, we've been facing colonization and all kinds of challenges for the last several hundred years, but but today's challenges, um, a lot of those specifically are based around um, how do we recognize and define our own communities and keep our own communities and what those practices are. And so um, it's an opportunity to consider that um, protecting the community is a form of resistance. Defining community and protecting it are top of mind for Molly right now. In fact, the first time I became aware of Molly, it wasn't through her music. It was through community organizing. Molly's the executive director of the Bamazine Land Trust, which works to reclaim land of, quote, historical, spiritual, and ecological significance for the Wabanaki people. She and others from Odernak First Nation have also questioned the legitimacy of Vermont's four Abenaki-identifying tribes. They received state recognition back in 2011 and 2012, but aren't recognized federally. Molly helped present the case at a talk at UVM this past spring. Here's audio of Molly that our newsroom recorded at the event. There has been an, a rising movement of uh, race shifting or pretendians, um, groups of white people with that may have a native ancestor from long ago, um, deciding to form communities around this hobby. The Abenaki ancestry of Vermont groups has been called into question before. When one Vermont group applied for federal recognition in 2007, the Bureau of Indian Affairs noted that less than 1% of the individuals cited in the application demonstrated Abenaki ancestry. The bid failed. In May of this year, Molly discussed the ancestry of Vermont's state-recognized tribes with Vermont Public. Indigenous nations determine who is part of the community. The line that the people in Vermont are trying to walk is they're asserting themselves as sovereign nations when for hundreds of years they were just not known as indigenous. And so in the last 20 to 40 years, they're coming forward and saying we're sovereign nations, we get to define who we are. Members and allies of Vermont state-recognized tribes have rejected claims that they're, quote, pretendian, and they point to the long process they went through in the 2000s as evidence of their legitimacy. That's the process that ultimately led to their state recognition. They've also said that Abenaki people were targets of the Vermont Eugenics Survey and hid their identities because of it, though a 2002 report by the state attorney general's office found little evidence for this claim. The dispute between Abenaki identifying groups in Vermont and Odernak First Nation is still ongoing. It's a deeply personal matter for all of the people involved, but it's not what this episode is about. And Molly says it's not what her album, Sweet Tooth, is about either. It's really about the conditions that caused Odernak's expulsion from the land of Vermont and the rest of their homelands in the first place. It's a sadly familiar story for indigenous communities around the continent. Molly was thinking about this history when she first started composing Sweet Tooth towards the end of her time at Dartmouth College in 2018. And she was thinking about how not only were communities like Odernak forced to leave their ancestral territory, but then they were subjected to policies designed to further marginalize them. The colonial, patriarchal sort of policies that have been imposed on indigenous people through the Allotment Act, uh, through the Indian Act in Canada, um, that limits our ability to um, 
marry and be in love with people that we choose, right? And and put kind of pressure on indigenous people in one sense or another, you know. Molly just mentioned two different policies. The Allotment Act of 1887 made it possible for the U.S. president to break up communally held tribal land and convert it to private property, and also to decide which community members had enough, quote, native blood to inherit the land. Meanwhile, the Indian Act of 1876 allowed the Canadian government to strip many indigenous people of citizenship in their own tribal nations. For instance, if a native woman married a man who wasn't native, she lost her status. But if a white woman married a native man, she actually gained native status. And and the ultimate goal of these policies, right, are to alienate indigenous people from ourselves, first of all, and second, ensure that there are no more Indians left, right? It's It makes us uh, breed ourselves out of existence, and it's a way for the government to no longer have obligations to tribes. If there are fewer and fewer people, there's less and less money that they're required to um, present to us because they took our land, so they owe us, right? That's the, the underlying truth of that. Molly says the lasting effects of these acts were to chip away at tribes' ability to define their own citizenship as sovereign nations do. And they gave colonial governments say over who counts as native, instead of leaving this to native nations themselves. These issues are highlighted in the third and final movement on Sweet Tooth. If the first movement is about the past, and the second movement is about spirituality. The final uh, movement is for the living, right? It's the, the issues of community keeping and community definition and community preservation that we're facing going forward. Look no further than the titles of the last two tracks, Fractions and Blood Quantum, both of which speak to the legacy of efforts to divide and even erase Native nations. Blood quantum laws were created by the U.S. government to measure the amount of someone's, quote, Indian blood. These laws were used to control and minimize the population of certain tribes. So I was thinking a lot about this, you know, and um, the kind of stress that comes with indigenous love and how angry that makes me, you know, and at the time, you know, it was really, really weighing on me. So I wanted to put out an album that not necessarily in words, but um, in spirit and instrumentally addressed these concepts. The closing song on the album, Blood Quantum, also has a Wabanaki subtitle. Nuewe just go wika pa which means, I wasn't going to make you say that, which means <laughs> uh, <you. laughs> um, I stand to face him or I stand ready to fight him. Who are you standing ready to fight? <laughs> um, well, speaking, I guess, of the last movement, I'm ready to fight against anything that is trying to diminish our communities and the health of our communities. And, you know, the other lyrics of that chant are, we honor our matriarchs, we honor our grandmothers. And so I'm fighting for them. You know, I'm fighting for the women in the community and our role in uh, leading our communities. I I wasn't going to say fight the patriarchy, you know, but... (laughs) Same idea. Yeah, (laughs) we got there. (laughs) Now we're just going to
Listening through Sweet Tooth is a journey. The first time I heard it, I didn't have any of the context that Molly later provided when I spoke to her. And yet, there's just something about it. Or, as I put it to Molly, it's really good. Thank you. And I'm also like, what is this? Like, I don't know <laughs> why I love it, but it's really cool. Nice. <laughs> the album's power comes through even if you don't understand the Wabanaki language. There's a marriage between the lyrics and the ideas behind the music with the musical style itself. Sweet Tooth is filled with improvisation and free jazz, musically liberated from some of the rules that structure other genres. The era of jazz that always called to me most was sort of, people call it free jazz or avant-garde or that kind of corner of the music where they said, we don't want to be enslaved to, these are Ornette Coleman's words, enslaved to meter or enslaved to changes, harmony, right? We're dealing with sound, and we want to be able to be free with this sound. And there's all these artists that kind of fall, follow in that tradition. One of those artists was Don Cherry, a trumpeter active in the second half of the 20th century, who played with famous jazz musicians like John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman. Don Cherry, by the way, was both Black and Native American. Indigenous people have always been a part of shaping jazz. Um, and this is often overlooked, you know, but a lot of the um, jazz innovators at big turning points in the music have been indigenous, often indigenous and black um, within one identity, you know. Um, that, that's the ideology that I'm engaging with and the spaces that I wanted to open up for um, Wabanaki music because I think that our music, it is improvised music. These compositions, they sound to me like Wabanaki music really leaning into that, that pocket and that fold where, where freedom and resistance meets um, the tradition of improvising. Sweet Tooth is the first time Molly's putting out music under her own name as a composer and bandleader. It feels like the first authentic statement in my creative journey that comes like purely from me you know and from draws from sort of all the facets of who I am and secondly I guess you know to tell the story of my community in a broader way our people are still adapting and our cultures are growing and developing in beautiful ways and that's not a loss you know and I just encourage people not to think of Indigenous people doing modern forms of art or existing in a modern way as a loss, you know. Um, there's, no, there's no loss in that um, if we're true to who we are. Sweet Tooth will be available everywhere on October 28th. Molly says she's also working on a visual component to the album, so stay tuned for that as well. I'm nervous to bring it to the communities for like all kinds of reasons, you know. For people who understand the language, I hope that they're not like, oh, she's totally butchering it, you know. And uh, for 
for the community that is not like jazz listeners, right? Like I hope that they are not um, offended by the harsher sounds, some of the, you know, more improvised textures uh, that we go for, you know, and it, there's a lot of considerations, but I'd have to just remember too that like, it's me. So, <laughs> you know, I mean it cause it's me. <laughs> Molly, thank you so much for making the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to the show. To see the album art for Sweet Tooth and find links to Molly's music, head to our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can submit your own question about Vermont, sign up for the BLS newsletter, and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at BraveStateVT. I reported this episode and did the mix and sound design. Editing and additional production from Angela Evansy, Myra Flynn, Elodie Reed, and Mark Davis. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music, other music by Molly Obamsawin. Special thanks to Savannah Marr, Gregory Cajete, Seth Bedard, Melody Mackin, and to Molly Obamsawin for all her input and help with this episode. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public. If you like our show, you can make a gift at bravelittlestate.org donate. Or find some friends and tell them to listen. I'm Josh Crane. We'll be back soon with more people-powered Vermont storytelling. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions.